Man, I am so excited for this episode. Yeah, it's good. This is the first one we've done since we got um, feedback. A lot of the, I would say that the feedback has been whelming. I think people want more esoteric jargon. They want less accessible to the lay audience. Uh, They want more Twitter in-jokes that no one understands. That's kind of the things I've heard. What have you heard? I've heard you're starting a podcast. When were you going to tell me you were starting a podcast? That was brave. Why did you start a podcast? I can't believe my husband started a podcast. This was shared with friends and family members. And, um, you know, we were doing the bit with the fake names. And uh, that was people were very confused when they were expecting my name, which I guess I'll be revealing shortly. Um, And they were like, who is who is this person who's talking? Um, But that's cool. I have I have our cold open bit. Are you ready for this? Oh, yes. Let's do it. So, you know. I, you had me, you know, these are coming out like a month or two after we record them. Um, and so I'm always reviewing the episode before it comes out and looking for errors because I don't want to get some nasty email about how um, there's an error. So I want to I want to just go down the list of errors we have and, and correct them now for the record. I feel like this is an easy way, right? Yeah, it's appropriate. So in the last episode, I mentioned that pemphigus was a T-cell, like a classic, I called it a classic T-cell mediated autoimmune disease. I immediately knew that was totally wrong, like... Um, not correct. I, uh, I, antibodies are a big part of it. So correction there, not a class of T-cell autoimmune, uh, autoimmune, T-cell mediated autoimmune disease. That's a mouthful. Um, number two is our lawyers have informed us that when the beginning of the last episode, I said that, you know, everything was opinion and that indemnifies us from any legal action. That's apparently not true and wouldn't hold up. So we are in fact very liable. Okay. Um, I mentioned uh, in our first episode that people should reach out to uh, Dr. Mehmet Oz, who's a professor of surgery. Um, I've been informed that, uh, you know, that's not his full title. He's also a uh, candidate for Senate now um, as well and a disgrace to medicine. Uh, other corrections, um, I believe uh, we had said that eggs eggs were, that dietary cholesterol mattered and you could not eat as many eggs as you want. Uh, in fact, that's the chicken lobby is pushing that, so that is false. Um, we've also said that white monster has all of the nutrients anyone needs and that's all you need to consume. That is apparently also false. You have to have all the colors of monster, not just white. Okay. Um, you can, in fact, OD on Tums. You can have too many. A little hypoxia is not good for you. It's, in fact, always bad. Well, like, how little are we talking about? Because, like, sometimes you just need it for a few seconds to really get you over the line. Yeah, somewhere between, um, you know, breathing well and David Carradine levels. Okay. Um, All right, and then the last one is, contrary to our previous podcasts um, regarding ISIS, you do not, in fact, have to hand it to them. (sighs) I I think we're going to have to uh, strike that one from the archives. Yeah. Right, so if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, you're not going to get a chance in the future. <laughs> do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want to start the show? Sure. Okay, so so welcome back to Caduceus Wild, the podcast whose audience is shrinking faster than the amount of small bowel that Jair Bolsonaro has after each resection. <laughs> Look, he really likes to eat plastic, and you need to keep him away from it. Okay, like they like he likes the texture of the plastic and something about the taste. He will eat plastic bags, and they will give him a blockage. 
His handlers need to keep him away from the plastic bags. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> I was really proud of that one. Do you, there's a there's a podcast called Five Four that that starts every episode with a with a little a little joke like that. And so I had to, I had to do that. <laughs> all right, you're 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 leading this episode. I think I'm coming back. Uh, I have some information for later on, but go ahead and take us away. Um, I am. I, we're not going to do the fake names anymore. My name is Lee. I'm an MS4 applying in pathology. Um, rank lists are probably already in by the time this comes out, so whatever. Doesn't matter. Go, go ahead, Dr. Screamy. Introduce yourself. Uh, I go by Screaming Pectoriloquy on Twitter, at Kalimovirus. I, I have a uh, keen interest in case reports and historical medicine, and that's kind of the raison d'etre of this uh, this podcast. And this episode is one I've wanted to do uh, for a long time. Bec- and before I even thought about doing a podcast, I was just really fascinated in this subject. And it, it, I think it's a, a well we'll keep coming back to going forward because there's just a lot of information about it. But this is a, a, a three-part episode about weight loss, uh, specifically diet pills and, and reducing agents broken up in three different sections. We got stuff from 1930s, stuff from 1960s, and stuff from 1990s, which uh, may be more relevant to our uh, current audience who were probably alive at that time. Yeah, and I would say actually it even, uh, as uh, you know, we'll find out that, you know, even up until 2010, um, you know, this stuff continues. This is a pattern that's kind of repeated over and over, and I don't feel like uh, it's getting better each time. No, no. And it's it, a large part of it is how people are accessing it, whether it be through some quack physician's office or o- over the mail or over the internet. Uh, it just the the number of different materials and compounds that are available continues to multiply. Old favorites are returned to, as we'll see again and again. And there's just... I don't think we're at a point where the people in charge of this are able to really crack down. Although they try, and then they, they get a couple of people now and then, it's somewhat of a losing battle because it's a perennial topic. People want something that will help them lose weight, and they want it now, and they want it fast, and they want it with as little effort as possible and by God, there are some medications, or I won't call them medications, there are some compounds that will do that with side effects that involve burning yourself alive and death. Yeah, I think um, there's a combination of both the actual understanding of the physiology of the human body and how uh, excess weight can be harmful and also the sort of the societal pressures beyond what is healthy to to lose weight rapidly. I think there's a, a you know, the last story we'll talk about, the most recent one, the thing that sort of kicks it off, I think is profoundly sad. But yeah, just it's, it's I feel like it's people who are desperate and um, and have often tried, you know, all the standard stuff like diet and exercise and had it fail. And then on top of that, I think it's people, uh, either well-meaning or unscrupulous people who sort of take advantage of those patients. Absolutely. So let's get started. Sure. Let's go all the way back to 1919. Uh, we're in Paris, France now, and there is a public health physician from America who's stationed in Paris and has been for most of World War I, who's taken a keen interest in some maladies that have afflicted munitions workers. 
these are people who are responsible for processing and putting together munitions, bombs, explosives that were used extensively throughout the First World War, more, more than any other war up until that point. It was somewhat of an ill-timed effort because by 1919, of course, the war was over. Uh, so they weren't making as many munitions and, and they weren't, and he, he kind of arrived right as everything stopped, but he was still able to get a pretty good story on, on what exactly happened. At the time, they were already aware of similar health problems in British and American munitions factory workers, but the particular disease and, and maladies uh, suffered by the Parisian workers uh, had some key differences. For starters, the British and American factories, they primarily made TNT. And in Britain, where the jobs were held by mostly women, young women at the time, uh, they were they were nicknamed the Canary Girls on account of uh, repeated exposure to TNT, which was a yellow chemical that dyed their skin and hair this orangish yellowish color. I, I just kind of- I just love the idea of like you know this like Acme you know Wiley Coyote like <laughs> TNT factory. <laughs> They would also like complain of headaches, nausea, vomiting. Some would get skin rashes. And there's even reports of some giving birth to yellow babies. Hmm. But the Parisian workers, they were exposed to a different explosive compound. And though it gave some of the same kind of side effects or, or toxic effects like nausea, vomiting, uh, headaches, skin rashes, and the yellow skin staining, they had significantly more toxicity in one area. Now, this compound was called 2,4-dinitrophenol. It's a a small phenol ring with two nitro groups. And if you don't know what a phenol ring is, don't worry about it. It's not important. But I should mention that nitro groups tend to, when added to base compounds, make them more explosive. Uh, they're, They're very reactive species. And the more nitro groups you stick on uh, a molecule, the more explosive it tends to get in general. So 2,4-dinitrophenol, that means there's two nitro groups on there. Uh, and in fact, the TNT that we mentioned earlier, that actually stands for tri-nitrotoluene, which is similar to dinitrophenol, except it has an extra nitro group and uses toluene instead of phenol as its base compound, but otherwise pretty similar. In addition to dinitrophenol, and I can hear the people uh, just logging off of this episode and, and yeah. stopping now because we're getting into some chemistry. But bear with me here because it, it, it gets somewhere. Trinitrophenol, that's three nitro groups on a, on a phenol compound, uh, has a, a lot of uh, applications in chemistry and in medicine. Its common name is picric acid, and it's part of the solution that's used to measure creatinine concentrations in in standard serum laboratories it changes of course it is it changes color with depending on the amount of creatinine uh so there is no escaping nephrology in any of these episodes i will bring nephrology into it it's kidneys all the way down all the way down but i say this just to kind of give you an idea of how dangerous these compounds can be because picric acid and tnt were the explosives on board the SS Mont Blanc, uh, which was responsible for the Great Halifax explosion in Nova Scotia in 1917. Thousands of people died and thousands more injured. Uh, They're very dangerous just in the standpoint of safe handling. But beyond the explosive dangers, there's also the medical effects Mm -hmm. that need to be discussed. 
So our guy, Dr. Perkins, the American researcher in Paris, he noted that when the workers were first exposed to dinitrophenol, they experienced pretty common gastrointestinal complaints, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. But they also noted over time they had significant weight loss with fever and sweating, profuse sweatings at time. They go to the doctor and they say, but doctor, my mistress and my wife, they do not recognize me anymore. <laughs> I do not even want to fume. <laughs> Is that bad? More, that was bad. More acute exposures to this where they get a, a, an even higher dose or a higher amount of exposure, they would start to have complaining of difficulty breathing. Uh, and they would notice they would not make as much urine as they normally would. But when allowed to rest and removed from the factory for a few days, all of their symptoms would resolve. Uh, and I, he noted in, in his report that with the resolution of the other symptoms came a marked increase in urine production, which the workers dub debacle urinaire, which I, that's a phrase that's going to stick with me. Too much urine. It just becomes a problem. They just, they, it all comes out. I got, I got a joke for you. A French munitions worker goes to the doctor, says he feels depressed, like life has no meaning. Doctor, you're already cringing. The doctor turns to him and says, I've got a solution for you. Very simple. Go see great French munitions worker Pagliacci. He turns to the doctor and says, but doctor, I am Pagliacci. <laughs> Doesn't even make sense. It's Italian, but I had to put that one in. So... The other thing that was noticed was uh, some of the other workers had kind of a, a greater intolerance to the to to the dinitrophenol, and these are typically workers with baseline renal or hepatic disease, or also just straight up alcoholism. He will he he to, to to quote Perkins on how these presented. The usual course of diseases is followed: sudden onset of adynamia, an old doctor word that just means loss of vital power. With inability to continue work, violent colics, and abundant diarrhea. After leaving work and going home, the condition is aggravated. There is an elevation of temperature up to or exceeding 40 degrees Celsius. There are abundant sweats which stain the skin yellow, even in places where there has been no exposure of the skin to the chemicals. There is intense thirst. At times, there is an apparent improvement after a bowel or bladder discharge, giving false hope of recovery while the heart remains regular and auscultation shows nothing except occasional scattered rails. The pupils are contracted, the patient is frightened and excited, and partial or general convulsions follow. This condition of excitement is followed by unconsciousness, coma, and death in a few hours. One of the conspicuous points after death is that the extreme dehydration of the tissues leads to very early rigor mortis with delay of decomposition of the cadaver. This just sounds like low T. <laughs> and and I got to say, you know, this this work is from 1919 and and like all of all of the medical writings of the day, uh, the author attempted to look for differences and outcomes based on the race of the individuals. Oh, hang on, let me take a big sip from this glass of water while I read this part. <laughs> the the author identified workers as white, black or yellow which corresponded to the French, the Senegalese, and the Anamites, which uh, he meant the Egyptian workers. Hmm. He did notice a difference in outcomes within these groups, with the white workers 
by far faring worse than the others, but he did not conclude that this was based on any inherent differences in racial biology, but rather because the white workers were more likely to be alcoholic compared to their Muslim counterparts, and also because they were less likely to comply with safety rules, such as wearing a mask so you don't breathe in toxic explosion dust. Wow, you you love to see it. Um, <laughs> lot going on there. I just want to thank you for assigning me things that happened later in this century. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, it... It it just it, that that refrain showed up repeatedly through this report of just the the white French workers routinely disregarding what we would think of as sensible workplace safety rules, and his recommendations at the end of the report seem pretty familiar. See if you recognize any of them. I just I just want to say you call that disregarding recommendations. I call that joie de vivre. <laughs> So, so see if you recognize any of these. No eating in the workrooms, designating dining areas away from the chemicals, regular hand washing, wearing one set of clothes to and from the factory and another set of clothes dedicated while working in the factory, and taking a bath before leaving after each shift. You, you said this was 1919. What happened in 1918 that probably should have driven the message home to that, like, in general, <laughs> cleanliness and hygiene is important. Uh, uh, the, the great flu pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Still going on by the time of this report, by the way. Wonderful. Okay, so that was 1919. And that was a, a case of public health uh, research on this is something that's causing a lot of problems with these workers, and they're dying a very peculiar death when they get this extra exposure of this uh, dangerous compound. So let's fast forward to July 1933, and we find an article called The Actions and Uses of Dinitrophenol in the Journal of the American Medical Association by doctors Cutting, Mertens, and Tainter. Now, these are three researchers in San Francisco, and they are looking into the metabolic effects of dinitrophenol. And they were not only intrigued by the, the compound's mechanism of action and in potential therapeutic effects, but they noted that dinitrophenol as an industrial and chemical dye, wood preservative, something that's used quite a bit already in massive amounts, was readily obtainable on the market in pure form and is rather cheap, which at once indicates a point of superiority over the metabolic stimulants in general use. Now, this is likely referring to the other weight loss compounds that were available at the time, which were primarily thyroid extracts. Oh, wonderful. Just giving someone hyperthyroidism so that yeah. they, uh, they lose weight. Yeah, no bad, nothing bad can happen there. No, no prolonged hypertension that can cause any kinds of problems. Re regardless of the bad side effects, it also had the, the, the downside that, you know, you had to harvest it from an animal. You couldn't produce it on the cheap in a large chemical vat. And we all saw the Nicolas Cage film Pig, and we would never harm a pig again. Never again. These researchers, they found in a controlled setting with standardized doses of around 3 to 5 milligrams per kilogram, that basal metabolism in a patient could be increased by 30 to 50%, and patients can lose up to 20 pounds in 10 weeks without doing anything else. This is like incredibly promising this is this is this is a real effect they really lose weight it comes off and they really don't have to do anything else and per their regimen per their dosing schedule they found no changes in temperature respiration or pulse rate even after two months of daily administration 
but they did find at higher doses, specifically 5 to 10 milligrams per kilogram, it would cause the subjects to sweat copiously. But they do note one major difference between dinitrophenol and thyroid extract in this sense is that you don't really get the hyper-irritability with dinitrophenol that you get with thyroid extract or hyperthyroidosis, like, like <laughs> hyperthyroidism. You, you, you're going to get your, your palpitations, your irritability, everything kind of gets wired and everything goes up. Yo, yeah, no, I have a mug that says, don't talk to me till I've had my thyroid hormone. <laughs> so at the end of their paper, they caution that further study is needed, which, of course, you're legally obligated to say that in any science paper you ever publish, but with a particular concern for the development of potentially dangerous fevers. And they also noted that there were some adverse effects seen in experimental diabetic dogs that they tested it on. But at the same time, they thought, you know, maybe it's worth pursuing dinitrophenol in diabetic humans because it would enable them to burn off carbohydrates since this is a early oral medication. What a, we'll get to later why that's probably not plausible or, or even desirable. But that was their thought, and that's the hope of this drug, is that it seems like this new, very effective, very applicable drug that is cheap, readily available, and answers a prevalent problem in society. Well, that makes sense to me, because you can have too much blood sugar, but you can never have too little blood sugar. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. That was July of 1933, and then fast forward to September we get our first case reports on toxicity of the drugs called toxicity of alpha dinitrophenol, also in JAMA from doctors Anderson, Reed, and Emerson. They were performing their own trial of dinitrophenol as a reducing agent with 14 subjects, one of which experienced a severe erythematous rash, which is just a big red rash, uh, which involved the whole body excepting her face and scalp with edema of both arms, the left shoulder, the neck, and I love this the lobes of both ears. Uh, this was experienced for a period of about four days. The rash resolved uh, after discontinuation of the drug, but she had persistent joint pains that never quite recovered. So this is our first indication or your first report that, you know, this is not a harmless drug, excepting, of course, the 1919 munitions factory report where they described all of this already. But this is in a controlled medical trial. This is with... Uh, known doses, clinically monitored, and even still already one out of 14 people with an adverse reaction. What, uh, what year did you say it was again? 1933. Okay, so I assume they diagnosed her with wandering womb. <laughs> it, it is, it is kind of, just as an aside, it is kind of amazing reading these uh, old journal articles and seeing familiar terms that we still use today, rheumatism and, and whatnot, and then you do see stuff like wandering womb or, or, or things that just we don't really consider anymore or shouldn't consider anymore. Sorry, are you implying that we regularly use the word rheumatism? <laughs> Rheumatic disease. Fair. So now that was September. We'll go to October. This is early October 1933. Uh, another article titled Toxicity of Dinitrophenol in JAMA by Dr. Henry Haft describes an overweight university professor in Syracuse who had read the earlier JAMA paper by cutting Mertens and Tainer and convinced a local physician to give him a try, even with the very real possibility of 
body damage and incomplete knowledge of the drug at this point. This guy was uh, 39 years old. He was six feet tall. He was 263 pounds. Uh, they gave him the lower dose of three milligrams per kilograms, and he did fine for three days. But on the fourth day, he complained of profuse sweating, fever, pain in his legs and buttocks, fatigue, and increased hunger with an icteric tint to his eyeballs and abdominal pain that localized over the liver. His pulse rate was increased and his blood pressure was lowered and his urine showed traces of bile and sugar. They stopped the drugs and four days later his symptoms and physical exam findings had resolved. Uh, his physician was understandably concerned for liver damage and ended this the letter to the editor with, quote, Incidentally, there was some loss of weight, but not enough to compensate for the possible harm that it might have done this person. Oh, so there was some amount of weight that they were cool with, you know, this risk. No, it doesn't even sound like that. It, it, they, they said even with some loss of weight, it's not, it's not uh, enough. It's not, it, it's not worth it. Right, right. Meaning there is some theoretical value that they could have achieved where they would have been like, you know what? It's worth it. Yeah, I guess, I guess. So two weeks later, also October 1933, now we have a case, a death from alpha-dinitrophenol poisoning by Dr. J.C. Geiger in San Francisco. San Francisco, by the way, where most of this research is being conducted. He, he writes, a physician from Vienna obtained dinitrophenol from a local hospital to help him lose weight, and after taking a dose one week earlier without untoward results, he took another dose of about 300 milligrams. A, uh, they, don't, they don't give his weight, but I'm just assuming about three mg per kilogram. Just assuming he weighs 100 kilograms. So in line with what some of the other clinical studies have been using. So he took this dose at 11.50 in the morning and he went for a walk. Around 4 p.m. he felt some palpitations and some general apprehension. Uh, he went back to his hotel room. By 6 o'clock he felt uneasy enough to request his hotel call for him an ambulance. By the time he arrived to the hospital, he'd complained of being too warm and would throw off his covers and demand that they open even more windows for airflow. Uh, his temperature at this time is 105.4 degrees Fahrenheit. His pulse has increased from 84 beats per minute on arrival to about 140 by 9.30. By 9.45, he was in a coma, and by 10 o'clock, he died. And immediately after he died, they took a rectal temperature with a mercury thermometer and went it all the way up to the top, which means it was over 110 degrees. That's, you got to balance science with respect for the dead there. I think the immediate rectal temperature, you know, I'm going to give it to him on this one, but I wouldn't want to be the guy who suggested that. Oh, also, 20 minutes later, he was already completely rigid. Ah, rapid rigor mortis. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's pretty fast. I don't know. I, I haven't... One day I'll have done a forensics rotation. I'll understand the actual timing of that, but that sounds fast. Even though the letter in this case doesn't elaborate on it, uh, the patient had said he'd only took about five grains of the drug, which is about 300 milligrams. The post-mortem estimation was closer to two and a half to five grams uh, which is about 15 times the ordinary dose uh, at, at the time. And he, you said he, this was a physician who went to a hospital and acquired the substance for himself. Yes. You really hate to see an own goal like that. <laughs> By now, 
it's in the 1934, uh, you, you're starting to see more adverse results papers than you are just straight up research paper. Uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, we see an article, The Danger of Dinitrophenol as a Reducing Agent. Pulled a quote from it. Uh, you say, All too often, the uninitiated and enthusiastic seeker of slimness falls into the same difficulty as that with by the lay user reported by the London correspondent in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Although the dose was stated to be one capsule a day, the patient took 17 capsules in a three-day period and died. So now we're starting to see this drug is more available and the the time, the, the, the classic uh, reasoning of if one pill is effective, two must be better, four must be even better, and eight will get me where I need to be now, now, and now. Uh, which is, it's, it's a predictable response to these kind of medications, especially when they are more or less freely available for any quantity. You don't even, at this time, you don't even need a doctor's prescription to get them. You can just go to a druggist and say, give me the dinitrophenols. And they will. Well, it's a good thing that eventually these drugs don't go on to include uh, substances like stimulants with somewhat addictive properties, because that would be really <laughs> a compounding issue. <laughs> Uh, and then as an aside, not only is there the, the problems with uh, overdoses and toxicities from dinitrophenol, but there's some other research interests that some scientists have for the drug, uh, particularly as seen in schizophrenic patients. Uh, now, the understanding at the time is that schizophrenic patients have, on average, a lower basal metabolism rate, so they wanted to see what medications could be used to increase the metabolism rate, presumably to improve their lives or change the schizophrenia or, or whatever, or just to write down the numbers and see what happens. feels a lot like a, a fix the numbers scenario, yeah. less so a you know strong hypothesis-driven approach and more a, hey, this number's low, let's bring it up. So this article from June 1934 in New England Journal of Medicine, the effect of dinitrophenol on the metabolism as seen in schizophrenic patients... They say schizophrenic patients are noted to have lower metabolic rates and previous studies use thyroid preparations with reported benefits in some cases. Ten schizophrenic patients chosen in this study were monitored for seven weeks by given dinitrophenol. They had weekly labs drawn, including blood urea nitrogen, uric acid nitrogen, creatinine, cholesterol, sugar, lactic acid, glutathione, carbon dioxide, oxygen, and pH. And in addition to that, 24-hour urine specimens were obtained and catheterizations being employed at the beginning and end of the period to ensure complete and accurate collection because you just, I guess, cannot trust the schizophrenic patients to provide it. So just go ahead and catheterize them. So hey, of when the I day. said strict ins and outs, I meant strict ins and outs. Ugh, yeah. So they note that the patients lost 0.8 kilograms per week, even despite supplemental feedings. Their temperature, pulse, and blood pressure wasn't changed. And notably, they made no observation on the psychiatric symptoms. This was purely a study in basal metabolism in these 10 schizophrenic patients. See, they didn't shift the goalposts. They stuck <laughs> with their primary endpoint. You got to respect it. Uh, 
Also around this time, in 1934, there are several case reports of another side effect of this drug after more prolonged use, which is irreversible cataract formation. Some within weeks of use, some a few months later, and even one case reported in 1935 where the cataracts first appeared nine months after the drug was discontinued by the patient. She noted some blurriness in her vision was seen by her doctor, and five weeks later, completely opacified cataracts. Couldn't see. So this is this is a rapid cataract formation. This isn't the cataracts of, you know, you spend 60 years in the sun staring at the sky. This is just devastating development of uh, pretty rapid blindness in these people. That's the best kind of adverse effect to have is one that happens months later with devastating effect and little correlation to the original treatment. Really yeah. easy to figure that one out. At this time, in, in America at least, uh, you had the Food, food and Drug Administration, but as it existed, uh, it really couldn't do anything about this. Uh, it, it didn't have any authority to say, hey, don't give this. Hey, don't, don't uh, use this for weight loss or any, any purposes. But in 1937, another drug made some headlines, the aftermath of which gave the FDA some teeth. And a uh, very quick summary here, there's an antibiotic called sulfonilamide, which was used to treat strep throat infections, it was available as a tablet, a powder formulation. But as a newer antibiotic, there was some demand for a liquid formulation. So one chemist at a pharmaceutical company found that it could be appropriately dissolved in diethylene glycol. Uh, and they said, perfect, ship it out. They didn't test it. They didn't ask for any... Uh, studies on toxicity, they just said, yep, send it out. And it shipped all over the country. And the diethylene glycol was the, the toxin in this case, because it's a type of antifreeze that will you know, shut down your kidneys and develop metabolic acidosis and led to a lot of deaths. Okay. I see what you're saying. That sounds bad. But have you considered that additional regulation would stifle innovation? <laughs> like, exactly. Exactly. So like... <laughs> So at, at the time, the FDA put all of, its, all of its personnel, like a little under 300 people, to scour the country and try to have any of these prescriptions returned because they, they, they killed people. And the only reason the FDA could even take action on this was because the name, the branding of the drug was elixir sulfonilamide. And elixir implies that it's dissolved in an alcohol solution, and this was diethylene glycol. If it if it wasn't diethylene, if it if they didn't say elixir, the FDA would not have had any teeth for this either. So with these deaths and the mounting problems with dinitrophenol, there was 1938 the passage of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act which finally gave the FDA the powers it needed to demand safety testing, the powers to recall drugs, uh, the powers to review drugs to, before they're available, uh, which, you know, is where we are now. And later that year, they used their newfound authority to declare dinitrophenol to be an extremely dangerous drug not fit for human consumption. And, and to kind of give you a idea of how bad this was and how bad it was in the 30s for these kind of dangerous chemicals and compounds that were used in medicine. Uh, strychnine wasn't even banned yet. Wow. That's, yeah, that's 
really getting your priorities not together. I just want to point out, um, I do respect the need to make all drugs liquid form. One day I plan to be taking like my Lipitor and my Aduhelm with like bubblegum flavored liquid. I will only take bubblegum flavored medications. You know, that's right. We really need better tasty medicines. Yeah. Look, I, I am convinced that a good chunk of vaccine hesitancy is honestly related to people who are still scared needles and I don't blame them. Needles are scary and they hurt. Um, it's a minor thing though. You should get over it. But I bet you if we had like bubblegum favored COVID vaccine, at least 10% more uptake. I think so. I think we need, we need more oral vaccines. All right. So to kind of round this out, uh, this was, this was what was happening in the thirties. And then finally, after so many death and toxic outcomes, the FDA said no more, but you know, like all effective weight loss medications it has a way of coming back and i gotta mention briefly uh in 1985 there was a houston doctor dr nicholas bachinski who was busted for distributing dinitrophenol in his weight loss clinics and he had the best defense at the time he said that he did not believe he um needed FDA approval to dispense dinitrophenol because he's only using it in Texas and not in his clinics in New York, California, and Florida. That is, uh, that is some, you know, sovereign citizen stuff right there. I can, I can sell this medication because there is fringe on the flag in this room. <laughs> Incredible. I, Incredible I, lawyering. I hope he was his own lawyer in this case. Yeah. He also probably think, thought federal income tax was legal. And dinitrophenol never went away. It, it shows up every now and then. It's still around. And I had uh, one other case report I wanted to mention. This one's from 2009. Uh, wow. This is when people are now starting to get it over the internet. You'll see it uh, all over the place in like bodybuilding forums because it's a it's a very effective way to cut fat. And you know if you have some fat on your body that you want to get rid of because you are sculpting your Adonis figure. Uh, this is an irresistible compound. So you you search for dinitrophenol on on uh, bodybuilding forums, you will find it. But this was a this was a young woman who found a online distributor who would send her some, and it's 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 like all the others. She comes in, her heart's beating way too fast. She's got a fever, and she eventually lapses into coma. And stops breathing, goes into asystole. But what I wanted to to point out, the incredible thing about this was after she went into asystole, they uh, started CPR. They uh, gave her vecuronium and succinylcholine. They gave her both. And it was not possible to ventilate her due to widespread sustained muscle rigidity. Oh, boy. Like that, this, this is that, that. Uh, accelerated rigor mortis already in, in this lady who just they can't they can't move they can't move the 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 muscles in the chest wall and they can't properly even and she unfortunately she um she passed and, and uh, didn't make it yeah rigid chest wall sounds not compatible with life now the title of this episode which which i have as sleeping bears rainbow pills and broken hearts this is this, this does have something to do with sleeping bears. Not this drug in particular, but how bears can hibernate. And it has to do with how this drug works and the way nature has 
already anticipated its mechanism and and used it for other purposes. The way dinitrophenol works is it's it's an uncoupling agent. It's a very effective uncoupling agent. And what that means is it uncouples the electron transport chain from oxidative phosphorylation. And what the hell that means is it kind of disentangles the burning of fuel from the production of useful work. Right. As, as, as we all know, the mitochondria is the powerhouse <laughs> of the cell. And pretty much all of metabolism is working towards building a gradient in the mitochondria, uh, an electrical gradient. And if you diffuse that gradient without using any of the machinery that's already there, instead of generating ATP, which is sort of the energy molecule of the cell, you will just generate heat. Yeah. And kind of a simple way to think about it is if you have a dam, all of that buildup of water behind the dam, it can only go through the turbines and spinning those turbines is what produces usable energy. In the same way, the cells produce this gradient or this kind of dam of protons where the protons are all on one side of the cell membrane and the only way to get on the other side of uh, the cell membrane is to go through its own little turbine, uh, which generates ATP. And it literally does spin like a turbine. Small it, it, it does. But if you poke holes in the dam, water will leak out, but it won't do any useful energy. It won't create any energy. In the same way, these uncoupling agents have a way of binding to these protons and then passing through the membrane, letting go of the protons, then passing back and forth and repeating this process where you're not doing any useful work, you're not producing any ATP. So to make up for it, your body has to burn more calories to maintain a working gradient, otherwise you would die. Right. Think about it like if you poke a hole in the bottom of a cup, you're going to have to pour more water in to keep the same cup uh, volume level. And in this case, it's calories and energy. But sometimes you need to do that. Sometimes you need to generate heat without moving. You know, if you're out in the cold and you, you don't have enough cover on you, you'll start shivering because that's an easy way to, to move. And whenever you're moving, you're making heat and energy. But there are some ways to do it without even shivering. In uh, hibernating bears, they have a protein that's a, that's a functional uncoupling protein that does the same thing. And the bear doesn't have to move. It doesn't have to shiver. It just produces heat by burning up all the stores of energy it has collected over their feeding season. Uh, and the same thing also happens in the, for, for the med students reading this, the same thing also happens with the brown adipose tissues, particularly uh, pronounced in babies who need a way to keep warm. Uh, and they can't shiver as much. They can't move as much. So they use uh, the brown adipose tissues, which has a lot of mitochondria in it, and has these uncoupling um, proteins that do the same effect. Interestingly enough, and I, I have to have to say this because I got to put my master's in plant biology to use. Uh, nice. Salicylate is also an uncoupling agent. If you have patients who overdose on aspirin, they can get to toxic enough levels where they uncouple and form fevers and, and um, have the similar bad outcomes. Imagine if you had uh, finished that PhD instead of just a master's, the kind of fun facts you'd have. I, I think they would be equally as unfun. <laughs> but uh, in, in plants, salicylate is actually a, uh, a 
incredibly versatile molecule. And of course, we get salicylate from plants and it's used as a defense molecule. It's used as a ripening signal, but it is also used in some plants as an uncoupling agent to generate warmth to warm itself in colder environments. So this is a phenomenon that's used all over nature in, in many different varieties. Can I, can I share my fun fact about hibernating bears? Yes. I believe when they hibernate, there's a, they form like a, a stool plug in their rectum, like a bolus of stool. And so like that's how they sort of like keep their GI system from going while they're hibernating. And then they have just an awful experience when they wake up. That must feel amazing. Wow. So that's a good segue to uh, uh, the next topic, which is rainbow pills. Uh, now we fast forward to the 1960s. And uh, a great introduction to this is actually a story in a 1968 edition of Life magazine. It's a cover story called The Dangerous Diet Pills. And these were weight loss supplements or reducing agents that were available often in mail order without ever receiving an examination from a physician. Or you could go to their clinic once or twice and not really have any real follow-up, but they would just prescribe these these diet pills. Oh, you mean like the 900 websites that you can get uh, sildenafil <laughs> from that advertise on every other podcast? Essentially, yeah. It's it's the same idea. Or ADH clinics. Um, we had one in my, my college town when I was in med school. It was called ADHD Doctor or, or something like that. And he eventually got shut down. Um, it's, called, it's called Legitimate Physician. <laughs> So this story became national news when an Oregon State medical investigator and medical examiner, Dr. Russell Henry, testified in Congress and spoke with Life magazine about several deaths he thought were due to these pills. Um, cover story talks about this 19-year-old woman named Cheryl Oliver, uh, who had recently started on these rainbow pills and uh, was found dead in her bed. Uh, with no sign of struggle, no sign of assault or any traumatic uh, uh, events. He just in her bed, lifeless. So it became a coroner's case. He investigated. He found out that he was that she was taking these rainbow pills. And he connected it with a couple of other cases he had seen earlier in that year of also these people, no signs of trauma, died peacefully in their sleep in the ages between 19 and 40s. And all of them having started recently on these these rainbow pills. I, I, I want to just kind of take his testimony verbatim uh, that he gave in Congress. This is in January 1968 uh, on the diet pill industry. Uh, and he gives a pretty succinct summary of how these rainbow pill operations worked. The so-called rainbow weight reduction pills get their name from the fact that there are many pills and capsules of many colors in the regimen. The patients take from four to six up to 19 pills per day. Each pill or capsule is a different color and the patient is instructed to take them by color. That is, in a typical case, one orange, one green, and one brown before breakfast, one black at mid-morning, and one red and one pink at lunch, etc. From this sort of arrangement, the term rainbow pills gets its origin. It also should be noted that the pills are not prescribed but are dispensed from the doctor's office. So that's kind of how this works. They don't really tell the patients what's in these rainbow pills. And the idea... It's just, it's just Skittles. <laughs> it's just Skittles. I'm just giving you Skittles and you're paying me money. And so the idea is 
to give the impression that these are highly regimented uh, programs and that you are getting an individual weight loss program specific to you. When they're, they're all, they gave the same one out for everyone. They didn't do any variation. And it's a, it, it'll become kind of clear why, because a lot of these drugs that are given requires very close clinical monitoring for any adverse effects, uh, which you would need to change the doses depending on uh, the patient's response to that. And it, that never happened. They, they, these weren't the kind of operations where they would do their due diligence. This was see as many patients as possible and give them the product that they want. You call that a scam. I call that personalized concierge medicine. <laughs> So going on, uh, continuing from his testimony, uh, investigation revealed that the individual pills contained either singly or in combination digitalis, thyroid extract, amphetamines, thiazide diuretics, laxatives, and various kinds of hormones. The Holy digi- shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought there was gonna be, it was going to be like B12, vitamin C. Oh my God, this is like real stuff that can really mess you up. Oh, it, it, gets, it gets worse. So the digitalis and thyroid were usually combined in one pill, and there were other combined pills with varied in constituents. Each pill was a different color, and the color might be changed from batch to batch, dispensed to the patient, who is usually seen once or twice a month, but who could also obtain the medication by mail. The patients on full regimen, it was found, could have been taking as much as eight grains of thyroid, and I might interject here that uh, I've since come to the knowledge of more than 20 grains in some cases, uh, this is continuing from so his testimony. What is a grain? You said this more than once. Is this some like ancient like yeah, British measurement? It's it's an old pharmaceutical measurement. It, it's uh, based historically on the weight of a grain of cereal, uh, which was like sixty four point eight milligrams or something. Okay, so less than a bushel, more than a peck. Yeah, something like that. Uh, Four stone. You'll 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 still see it occasionally if you ever order like phenobarbital. It'll come in either sixty five milligrams or sixty four point eight milligrams. That's the that's the, the old grain. But wow. uh, the, the point is that these are a lot. Uh, this is a lot even for conditions that they're actually prescribed for. Dr. Henry reports of one case where a patient uh, who was working as a doctor's aide in an office was complaining to her boss of these, these palpitations. And the doctor took an EKG and asked her, why are you taking digitalis? And she replied that she didn't know she was. Uh, it was from these, these rainbow pills. There's another case he mentioned of a patient who had arrived to the hospital with complete paralysis, including her respiratory muscles, and was found to have a potassium of 1.6 milliequivalents per liter. Normal potassium is between 3.5 and 5.3. So 1.6 is severely low potassium. And, and we'll kind of get to why that likely happened in her case. Potassium is one of the tightest controlled electrolytes in the blood. We really don't like it when it's when it's below like 3.8 or above 5.2. And in this case, uh, low potassium levels can potentiate the effect of digitalis as they both bind to the same sodium potassium channel. So when you have less potassium around to bind to it, there's more digitalis and it binds to more of these channels. So it well, there's you know there's there's one good way to just sort of be misusing potent active drugs, and that is to uh, be combining them with others. <laughs> that's good. It's good. It's not just don't just take digitalis. Take it with something. And that's the thing is the digitalis 
you know, we still see it. it it's not as popular as it used to be. There, there's better drugs uh, available, but it's still used. But it requires strict medical supervision. Doses are closely tracked and adjusted on a regular basis by a doctor who will check lab work, check EKGs, and be on the lookout for any signs of toxicity. And that's for somebody who's just taking digitalis. You have to be extra careful when you have these other medications on board as well. It's not a drug where you can set it and forget it, especially with, you know, 12 other medications that you're sending to these patients. So potential toxic side effects of digitalis, you have your nausea, your vomiting, your palpitations, cardiac irregularities, arrhythmias. It can lead to cardiac death. There's like, if, if somebody has a normal heart, there is no reason to give them digitalis. So what makes this particular combination of medications so dire, so dangerous? It almost all centers around potassium. In this case, you have diuretics, you have the thiazide. That leads to a loss of potassium in the urine. You're also taking laxatives. That leads to a loss of potassium in the stool. You're taking amphetamines. That is going to decrease your appetite, so you just won't be eating as much food, which is the only way you're going to get potassium. You combine all of those with digitalis, you are going to have a bad time. You're going to have bad cardiac outcomes. The problem is uh, what this medical examiner came upon was that in examining these uh, patients uh, post-mortem and taking levels of these drugs, none of the drugs were really outside their therapeutic levels. Meaning, you know, you can't conclusively say, oh, the digitalis is way too high or, oh, the thiazide was way too high. They were all their normal levels, uh, but in combination, it creates this perfect storm of electrolyte catastrophe. Right. Your, your therapeutic window doesn't really matter when you've destroyed the whole house. And then that's those medicines. Uh, thyroid extract itself is, you know, it varies in potency from batch to batch, and there's no good way of measuring it. Uh, or, or keeping track of it, especially if you're not being followed by the doctor. And this is a moot point anyway, because you thyroid patients should not be taking thyroid extracts. One more side note, don't really have a lot of information on it because it's just so variable. But a lot of the pills also contained ovarian and pituitary extracts. So you would get just unknown amount of other hormones working as well. Wow, they're like literally doing the adrenochrome thing. <laughs> like the, the weird... QAnon conspiracy theory where people are harvesting adrenal glands from people, but you know, it actually happened. And it was <laughs> way more banal and sad. Yeah. Uh, and then another aside here, and this is just for, uh, to boost your pathology, uh, ego. Yes, please. There was another participant in the congressional testimony on the other side of this controversy, who was a president of one of the laboratories who produced these diet pills and who, tried to, uh, I guess, raise doubts into the credibility of Dr. Henry, who said that even though he was a medical doctor, uh, he hadn't been licensed for the last 23 years and is not practicing medicine, to which Dr. Henry uh, responded that he was trained formally as a pathologist, but before this had also practiced general medicine, uh, including delivering babies and sewing up cut fingers and everything and so forth. And that pathology is a medical specialty. It's a, it's a medical training. When you're practicing pathology, you are practicing medicine. And kind of the proof is in the pudding here. He was 
the one of the persons who spearheaded how dangerous these pills were and helped lobby to get them taken off the market. So kudos to Dr. Henry, pathology coming in clutch again. That rules. Um, I love to see, uh, you know, autopsies uh, find answers. And um, that's pretty awesome. And yes, pathology is medicine. And uh, anyone having gone through the application process now, I I appreciate a lot of perspectives on it. And anyone who is interested in path, uh, feel free to reach out because I'm happy to sell what is a a really cool and underrepresented um, specialty in medicine. And I, I got to mention another case that uh, Dr. Hen- Henry spoke about. There's another lady who brought pills to them, gave the name of the doctor who gave it to her. They called him on the phone, and it turned out he was very anxious uh, to tell them about why he was prescribing these uh, medicines. It was a chance to educate these people. And mm-hmm. he pointed out that as he understood it, there would be no danger of digitalis intoxication as long as one gave enough thyroid to cover up the possible ill effects. Digitalis makes your heart beat stronger, but it also makes your heart beat slower, uh, whereas thyroid will kind of uh, induce your heart to beat faster and faster. So uh, powerful, uh, powerful beta blocker for sinus tack <laughs> energy. It's 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 a ridiculous statement. It's complete misinformation, and yet that's what this doctor had thought. So, like, it's nice to know that there have always been these uh, medical professionals who just did not know what they were doing. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think one of you know maybe this is going to get darker and darker as you do more of these episodes. But I got to say, one lesson I'm learning is uh, nothing ever changes. <laughs> It, it really does it. It's the same shit again and again and again. So I, I also want to go back to the Life magazine story because the reporter uh, is a woman named Susanna McBee, and she did a, a, a sting operation of sorts. So she awesome. she is, at the time of the article, she was five foot five, and she weighed 123 pounds, which... You, you don't have to be a doctor, you know, even regardless of, you know, thinking about BMI or whatever the hell, like this, this isn't someone who needs to lose a lot of weight, you yeah. know, regardless of any, any of the more subtle issues on this topic, you, there's, there's no medical indication for losing weight. She goes to 10 different doctors who run rainbow pill clinics and she has them consulted for, for weight loss. And she writes, although three of them said I had no weight problem and another even congratulated me for catching the problem early, that is, <laughs> that is before it developed, they all, every last one of them, gave me diet pills. My haul was 1,479 pills. That's called patient satisfaction first, <laughs> and I believe that is a press gainy component. <laughs> She goes on further to write, uh, the encounters were all rushed. They all had these kind of like half-assed, half-hearted physical exam and questionnaires. And there were a lot of forms that she would fill out before even being seen by the doctor. And these were questions like, do you feel alone and sad at a party? Do you often cry? Do you often wish you were dead and away from it all? Really, really set them up. Just like really get them in the mindset before they go into the room. For this the- is pickup artist crap. <laughs> it, it's awful. This is negging. Yeah. And it's a doctor doing it. The The physical exam, if it existed at all, was completely rushed and unfocused. And 
she notes at the end of her 10 clinic survey that none of the fat doctors, as, as they build themselves, uh, had any consensus on diet. Some said eat what you want. Others offered elaborate programs. And there's no agreement on whether exercise was necessary or if she should even abstain from alcohol. The only intervention they all agreed on was pills, pills, pills. For as long as anyone can remember, doctors have been securing the bag. <laughs> Incredible. Those are my two uh, eras of diet pills. Uh, let's let's say we move on to the the more modern stuff, and I'll I'll let you take it away. Yeah, happy to. So uh, you know, I think this is really. Um, I had heard of this before. It was a little before my time, but I had heard of this before, and certainly, you know, my parents were aware of this. Like. This was a big deal in the 80s into the 90s. So let's talk about Fenfen. So Fenfen is a, uh, a weight loss pill regimen that became popular in the late 70s, early 80s. And it's a combination of two drugs, flenfluramine and fentermine. I'm going to ask you, uh, Dr. Screamy, do you think the combination of the drugs was FDA approved? I don't know if they were. No, they were not. They were just, it just kind of became a thing where people would start prescribing them together, uh, ideally to give lower doses of both, because even before this whole story starts, people were pretty suspicious that maybe too much of these drugs was a bad thing. So we're going to focus on fenfluramine because uh, it causes the bulk of the, the problems. Um, so fenfluramine is a serotonin releasing agent. That's similar to, so if you think of modern antidepressants, SSRIs, or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, they prevent, uh, so, so at a synapse, when two neurons are communicating with each other, they release chemical neurotransmitters into the synaptic cleft from one end of a neuron, and they're picked up by another. And so selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors prevent serotonin that's been let go into that cleft from getting sucked back up and recycled before it can be used. Serotonin releasing agents function similarly, though more potent, and they generally promote more serotonin rather than blocking the reuptake. And fentermine is basically a stimulant. It's like amphetamine. It causes uh, mostly norepinephrine, but uh, a, more than a few neurotransmitters to be released. And so the goal of combining these two was to lower doses of both because they wanted to prevent potential adverse effects. Uh, I think you'll quickly learn that that didn't really pan out. Um, but the combo was, like we said, completely homemade, never FDA approved. The reason there was already concern that maybe too much of these is a bad thing is because fenfluramine is related to aminorex, which was a... Um, Another weight loss drug that was pulled, I believe, in the 70s for causing pulmonary hypertension. So flenfluramine is introduced in the 1970s, and it really wasn't popular initially because it has a temporary effect. As soon as you stop taking it, you'll usually gain the weight back. But there was a trial in 1984 that showed in the control group only a 4.4 kilogram weight loss over 24 weeks, and in the flenfluramine group, a 7.5 kilogram weight loss. So Almost double the effect, a little bit less. Um, this, of course, is as an adjunct to diet and exercise. And aminorex had been pulled in 1972 because of this causing uh, pulmonary hypertension. Of note, aminorex is now a Schedule One stimulant believed to be 2.5 times more potent than amphetamine. So you, you don't get caught with it. So our first case report actually comes out in 1981. All right, this is from the UK. This is two patients. The first is a 26-year-old woman who's having increasing shortness of breath. She is unable to go dancing, which was like her big hobby. On exam, she has a right ventricular heave, meaning that if you put 
your your stethoscope on her chest, you can feel when the right side of her heart is pumping. It's so big and stressed. And when they did a heart catheter uh, catheterization where they snake a wire up, uh, up through the arteries uh, into the heart or up through the veins in this case to get to the right side of the heart, um, and they looked at the pulmonary artery pressure, she had a pulmonary artery pressure of 50 over 20, which is elevated. Um, that's pretty significantly elevated. It should be much less, though we will see a higher and higher one in this uh, in this setting. So she was count. You know, they they kind of ruled out other causes, and they sh- they counseled her to stop her uh, oral contraceptive pill and the fenfluramine. And she recovered, and one year later had a normal calf and was able to go dancing again. The second case reported in this 1981 article is a 45-year-old woman who's on fenfluramine and starts to develop dyspnea, and her right ventricular pressure is elevated as well. She has cardiomegaly on x-ray, so her ex- her heart looks big on x-ray, and her EKG has a pattern consistent with right heart strain, including uh, a P wave, which is a morphology of the P wave called P pulmonale, indicating a larger right side of the heart. The P wave is sort of where the origination of the heart starts beating. I actually don't know enough electrophysiology to explain <laughs> this coherently, but, you know, it's a thing. Um, as well as uh, T wave inversions in V1 to V5. These are the areas of the EKG that point to sort of the front of the chest and so are, are, are saying that there's there's a, a repolarization abnormality in the heart because of some structural effects in, in that part of the heart. As well, they measured her cardiac output by endocyanine green indicator dilution. So this is, this is interesting. I want to mention this just because it's some cool technology that I think is, is, is still used to some degree. So this is basically how do we tell how much blood is moving through the heart at any given time? And so a really simple way to do it is to put a dye into the blood and follow it uh, and see how long it takes to circulate and get diluted. So they, they uh, cannulate the artery, they inject the dye, and then you uh, draw blood serially and see how long it takes the dye to basically distribute and go away. And that can, you can infer from that plus a catheterization how much blood the heart is pumping out per minute. That's your cardiac output. There, there was a similar test that they would use back in, I think, the 50s and 60s, where they would intravenously inject a bitter agent in the arm and then take a stopwatch and measure how many seconds it took to show up uh, on their tongue where they could taste it. And as soon as, as soon as you notice a bitter taste, you say, oh, it's bitter. And, you know, normal would be, I don't know, like six seconds. But patients with heart failure with slower pumping blood – take like 12 seconds. So that was a, that was an early test before they had a lot of imaging studies to do. Very interesting and interesting implications for the distribution of, you know, rapid agents in patients with poor perfusion. <laughs> she has a, a pulmonary artery pressure at this point of 440 dynes per second per uh, centimeters to the negative fifth. I guess that's... What the fuck is that? Yeah, I don't know what that is. I don't know. That's like Just not, tell us what it means. Don't, yeah. don't tell uh, me what those units are. It's 440 are. and normal is 67. Okay, so I understand really elevated. that. I understand yeah. that now. So she discontinued fenfluramine. Six months later, she's regained all the weight, but she's also fully recovered. So despite being counseled about the dangers of reinstituting fenfluramine, it was restarted. She wanted to do it to try the, the weight again. So this is six to try to lose the weight again. So this is six months later. It was restarted. She was told to report immediately any deterioration in exercise tar- uh, tolerance. Well, guess what? Six weeks later, she develops exertional breathlessness and palpitations and stops fenfluramine again. Within two days, her symptoms disappeared. But two weeks later, her echocardi- her sorry, her EKG, her electrocardiogram, was still abnormal. Four weeks after that, it finally resolved and continued to, to stay resolving. Of note, she had no left-sided abnormality. So this is all the right side of the heart. There are two chambers of the heart. Sorry, four chambers of the heart, two sides. Uh, the right side 
is before the lungs and the left side is after the lungs. And that becomes important when we talk about the mechanism of why fenfluramine can cause the issues that it causes. So she gets better, but this is 1981, this is two cases. In 1986, we have another case. I just want to point out too, I love looking at these old articles. There's an article right after this about social admissions and holiday admissions <laughs> and increased in-hospital mortality. And I was like, wow, we've had a broken system that requires the, the healthcare system to care for people uh, so that their caregivers can have a break, even in 1986. I, Incredible. Uh, the other name for this podcast could have been Nothing Ever Changes. Yeah, really. Weight loss clinics posting their L's, nothing ever changes. All right, so 1986, this is a 58-year-old woman, 20-pack year smoking history, but otherwise healthy. From 46 to 56, she had seven one-month courses of fenfluramine. She started to develop worsening dyspnea, right-sided heart dysfunction on her echo. They could actually see uh, on her echocardiogram where they take an ultrasound, look at the heart. They could actually see paradoxical motion of her intraventricular septum. So normally the left side of the heart should have higher pressure than the right because the right only sees the pressure coming from the lungs. The left side sees the back pressure coming from the resistance of all the major vessels in the body. But they actually saw, so so that would cause usually the septum to not move or move a certain way. And they see it moving the wrong way because right-sided pressures are more were, were stronger than the left-sided pressure. Uh, on catheterization, her left-sided pressures are all normal, but her pulmonary artery pressure is 120 over 60, which is a pretty good systemic normal oh blood pressure. Oh my God. I, yeah. If I take your blood pressure in the doctor's office on your arm, 120 over 60, I'm okay with. I mean, it's a pretty wide pulse pressure. Maybe you want the, the diastolic up a little bit, but uh, that was her entire right side of her heart. Holy crap. Her aortic pressure was only 140 over 80. Oof. Uh, they anticoagulated her because of there's some anecdotal evidence that uh, that was helpful for uh, pulmonary artery hypertension. Um, but she ended up dying suddenly uh, several months later. Unclear why, but my get, you know, gun to my head, arrhythmia, sudden cardiac death because she has an abnormal structural heart disease with the, with this right-sided um, hypertrophy. At necropsy, there was appreciable right ventricular dilation and hypertrophy. And histological examin uh, examination showed changes of florid classical plexogenic pulmonary hypertension. Oh, yeah, the florid classical plexogenic Plexigenic pulmonary hypertension. Yeah. The point is she clearly had pulmonary hypertension. That was the cause of all these issues. Um, and the authors actually cite this 1981 study. So now we have sort of three cases collected together. But honestly, nothing happens for like 10 years. And the big catalyst for what happens next comes from the Boston Herald in 1997, an article which I was not able to access, unfortunately, entitled Diet to Death. And this detailed a 30-year-old woman named, I believe, Mary Lennon, who after taking one month of FenFen, died in February 1987, and they published a front-page article on her. She was trying to fit into her wedding dress. Oh. Like, of course, to make it as sad as possible. She was trying to lose weight to fit into her wedding dress, and she got uh, she developed heart failure, right-sided heart failure, pulmonary artery hypertension, died in her 30s. Her family sues the maker of the drugs, Wyeth uh, Pharmaceutical, as well as the Walgreens Pharmacy and the doctor who prescribed it. The FDA obviously hasn't approved this, so it's, this starts to, to get people talking. Then there's kind of a one-two punch. In August 1997, the New England Journal of Medicine publishes an article. The first author is uh, Heidi Connolly that details 24 cases that occurred at the Mayo uh, that they've acquired over the years of right and left-sided heart disease associated with FenFen, as well as eight of them with pulmonary artery hypertension. And a lot of these patients ended up requiring valve replacement. So we were actually able to, they were, the doctors were actually able to get uh, the valves and look, examine them histologically. And this is where they sort of start to see uh, see the mechanism at play here. 
So during the mitral valve repair of one of these patients, unusual morphologic features were noted. The posterior and anterior leaflets were tethered and the chordae were shortened. So the valve looks very abnormal. The, 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 the two leaflets that formed the valve were sort of stuck to the walls and were not moving well. The valve was glistening white, had no rheumatic calcification or yellow discoloration, but resembled valves affected by ergot alkaloid derivatives. The patient had not used ergot preparations. Intraoperative transesophageal echo demonstrated severe mitral regurgitation and mild tricuspid regurgitation. So disease on both sides, and the valve looks totally messed up, and it looks like someone who's been taking ergotamine. And ergotamine is you're either incident, accidentally or deliberately exposed to it. Um, I'm, I'm actually not sure what the, what the uses are, but I do know that it was the cause of one episode of House in which a, uh, an undertaker uh, starts going crazy, and it's because she's eating bread that's got mold on it that grows ergotamine. Um, so that's a uh, little. It's yeah. um, uh, uh, anti migraine. Uh, wow. Used, uh, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. You can use it for for migraine uh, and not prophylaxis or for for breaking it. Uh, acute migraine attacks. Acute migraine. Yeah. And okay. Also, was it uh, something of childbirth? Either it's an inducer, or um, I don't know. Maybe used as an abortifacient. Okay. So we'll we'll see why that's why that's useful information and why the authors refer to that. After discharge, this patient also went on to develop tricuspid valve regurgitation. So they had problems with the mitral valve on the left, and now they're also having problems with, my, with the tricuspid valve on the right. Echo showed that the rep- mitral valve repair was intact. There was no issue there. But the tricuspid valve was now thickened, failed to coapt, meaning it failed to close, and the regurgitation was severe, meaning the blood with every beat was going back up into the atria instead of moving forward through the pulmonary artery. Fortunately, with, uh, with medical management and discontinuation of, of FenFen, the patient's symptoms uh, slowly resolved. So now we've cut this, uh, this messed up valve out of a patient, and we can look at it under a microscope, which is my favorite thing to do. On H&E, the, the heart valve looks like it has stuck-on plaques of proliferative myofibroblasts and extracellular matrix deposition. Why is this important? Well, because this looks like carcinoid syndrome. Dr. Screamy, do you remember carcinoid syndrome from like step one? Oh, that's a serotonin, uh, it's an adverse serotonin reaction from like tumors that are producing it. And they, good God, I'm going, I'm going to, uh, 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 I'm going to splice in a, an actual answer here. Uh, I, I had a lot of shit to do, so I, I never got around to learning what this was. No, that's okay. I can cover you. So. Carcinoid tumors are a type of tumor derived from neuroendocrine tissue, which is specialized tissue that basically makes either hormones or neurotransmitters. And so when you get these tumors that grow out of control, they start to secrete these uh, neurotransmitters and neurotransmitter precursors because they're all messed up and they're not making things properly and they're releasing them wherever they want. And so you get extra serotonin floating around the body, which we usually, you know, now people have like cute tattoos of serotonin and it's like, oh, it makes you happy. Well, too much of it is not a good thing, and it can cause a lot of problems. And one thing it does is it makes the pulmonary arteries constrict specifically more than other vessels. So you get elevated pulmonary artery pressure. And then on top of that, it also, the mechanism's unclear, but it causes these buildup of fibrinous plaques on the tricuspid valve. In this setting, it was on the mitral valve as well. Uh, The reason we think more right-sided heart disease and only the tricuspid valve is because serotonin is very well metabolized within the lungs. So that's why with classic carcinoid syndrome, you only see right-sided heart disease because the lungs chew up all the serotonin before it can affect the left side. But 
apparently fenfluramine was working everywhere here and, and maybe just producing so much that you're affecting the left and right side as well. So, you know, uh, the, the reason they mention ergotamine is because that can also have a similar effect mediated through serotonin. So now the authors have, you know, they're sort of pointing towards a mechanistic description of why fenfen is suddenly causing right-sided heart disease and deaths in some of these patients. But of course, because this is not a controlled study, the authors have to hedge a little bit and they say, in the absence of a control group or a case control study, definitive statements about a true association of valvular disease with fenfluramine fentermine therapy cannot be made. However, the appearance of clinically significant left-sided regurgitant valvular disease in a population less than 50 years old is rare. Thus, the association of valvular regurgitation with fenfluramine fentermine treatment is not likely to be due to chance. Moreover, the unusual echocardiographic morphology of the lesions further diminishes the likelihood of a coincidental observation. So, you know, I'm going to give uh, the FDA credit here. This is kind of an observational study. It's a case series. It's not a true strong trial, but this scared them and they, they acted quickly. So the FDA alerted medical doctors that had received nine additional reports of the same type after this article came out and requested all healthcare professionals to report any cases to the MedWatch program, which is sort of where doctors can submit sort of adverse events um, and the details about them, or uh, to speak to their respective pharmaceutical manufacturers. The FDA subsequently received over a hundred additional reports of valvular disease in people taking FenFen, uh, into people taking FenFen, fenfluramine alone, or dexfenfluramine alone, which is a another sort of same manufacturer, another drug, similar structure. So this this article comes out in August. In September of 1997, the FDA requests withdrawal of the drug. I right? I, I got I to interrupt because yeah. I, I was looking for that Boston uh, Herald article, and while yeah. I, I did not find it, uh, that article came out in May of 1997, and searching, okay. searching through my archives, I found one in a California newspaper from June of 1997 with big words saying, caution, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. Don't consider FinFin for weight loss without knowing seven critical facts. And it goes on to say, you may have heard of reports and read the article being FinFin being the diet of death, blah, 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 blah. What this is, is an advertisement for a weight loss clinic where he is saying, I prescribed FinFin safely. And in fact, I've even prescribed it to my wife for seven years or has struggled for seven years uh, now after this uh, medication has lost 45 pounds and I will give you this free pamphlet of seven crucial facts you must know before turning to FinFin uh, if you come in for a free weight consultation. And I, this is, this is like a brilliant advertising because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's building on the panic that has developed but knowing full well that he's probably going to get some people who will still say, oh, yeah, even with these risks, I still want to try because I want to lose weight. And this doctor will do it safely for me because he, he says he can do it safely for me. This is fantastic. I never thought I'd see the fen-fen wife guy. <laughs> New BuzzFeed article. Which of these seven fen-fed adverse events are you? Oh, my God. All right. Uh, so, you know, I thought this was really interesting. I found a, a little bit of contemporary news here in, in the New York Times in 1997. So you, when the FDA pulled this drug, do you think everyone was happy about it? I think people are by and large uh, pleased when their safety from a small chance of risk is taken into consideration. And no, I think they were all pissed. They, they wanted their quick loss drug right now. That's absolutely right. People, for various reasons, 
were upset about this. I mean, I think most people were generally thought it was it was good for safety, but uh, the New York Times article quotes many people, including one who talks about going to Canada to try to get it um, because it had worked so well for them and nothing else had. Another patient really just kind of called said it was legalized speed and felt like they need their fix, um, which fentramine is a stimulant. It's not quite the same as, you know, pure illicit amphetamines, but uh, the comparison is notable. And then just pulling the the incredible, uh, I just want to pull this poll quote from the very end of the article. Whoever wrote this, 1997, masterwork, masterclass in how to end an, a, a, a human interest story. For many, however, the desperation remains. One FenFen patient, a mother of two in western suburban Boston who insisted on anonymity, said she had asked her doctor if there weren't some way to introduce a tapeworm into her system. I'm just hoping for a freeze-dried worm, she said. End of article. (laughs) Beautiful. Wonderful. That is, journalism can be art. Oh, well, now we have to do an episode on parasites. Oh, let's do it. I love it. We do a little immunology in there. I can kind of, you know, actually contribute something. So as of 2005, which is the last I could find, there were more than 50,000 product liability lawsuits from FenFen victims. And Wyeth Pharmaceuticals had set aside $21.1 billion to cover the damages. They just had $21.1 billion just to sit aside? I've said it once and I'll say it again. The economy is fake. (laughs) Of note, there was another uh, weight loss drug, Subutramine, that I didn't get the details on, but that was pulled in 2010. So really a history of, uh, of drugs getting pulled. Now that said, did you know there is a FDA approved use for fenfluramine still? And that is for Dravet syndrome, which is a rare epilepsy syndrome. Well, how about that? Fentermine, though, is an appetite suppressant that really doesn't last very long. You quickly get accustomed to it, um, but it's like fine. It was just fenfluramine was the problem. Huh. Yeah, so that's that's the history of fenfen. And, and I think sort of taking all three of these cases together and, and doing my synthesis, I would just say that nothing ever changes. People are uh, – the healthcare system is eager to prey on – uh, people desperate for a solution to a, a problem that both has health concerns and social pressure associated to it. And uh, and we've learned nothing. Oh, man. So I, I will say, and I, I, you know, I did my internal medicine residency and we had our outpatient clinic and we didn't get a lot of, uh, of patients who were wanting to do uh, weight loss medications, but, you know, still as part of training, you still have to be aware of what medications are available and there's uh, fentramine is still you know used uh, in, in the weight loss industry, but it's also available as a combination with fentramine and topiramate. The name is uh, I I cannot say it, Qsymia Q S Y M I A, and it's you know it's a it's a proprietary combination. It's, it's uh, both of these medications have been around for long that they're generic, but the combination is not. And, you know, you think, oh, I'll get around this proprietary formulation by just prescribing fentramine and topiramate separately. But apparently you can't do that. I, I, it, it, at least was my understanding. I'll, I'll, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but you're, you're not able to give like more than three months a year of fentramine prescriptions. And so you can't just prescribe fentramine and topiramate uh, in, indefinitely. Uh, and unless you're using this brand name, I, it makes no sense to me. I, you know, I, I don't practice in the weight loss, uh, sector of medicine other than, you know, fluid based weight loss. <laughs> but you know, this, this is a, this is a topic that still fascinates me. And I think we're going to see it again and again and again and again. 
it might even be interesting to do uh, some episodes on weight loss solutions that were tried and, and didn't didn't work or worked but were stopped by uh, patients of their own volition, like the Olestra. <laughs> uh, That's a fun one. Uh, that is that is such a great one, and I, it, it, you know, it, it, every everybody knows about like you know if if you know about Olestra, you know why it was stopped with the you know the the anal leakage of oils because if it's not absorbed, it's got to go somewhere, and if it goes in your mouth, it it's either coming out your mouth or coming out the other side. But it, that that that. That's a fun one. Again, this is this is a, a topic of endless fascination, and I'm, I'm sure there will be more uh, throughout the years. And it, it it just seems like almost like the philosopher stone of uh, of, of medicines, trying to find the one compound that will uh, induce safe, side effect free weight loss. And I just I I will put money on it right now that it will not happen either in my lifetime or forever after my lifetime but good luck trying to collect after i die yeah so this still happens today and we've i think i've run into more than a few on you know shady characters on twitter who are now all crypto guys <laughs> but they all used to be like weight medicine oh BS God, yeah guys and uh and i would put dr oz in that category so i'm waiting for his crypto turn after the senate thing doesn't work out you know it's gonna happen i i he he has to be attracted to that yeah that's grim there's definitely a a siren call when, you know, can you imagine being a doctor and being like, you know what? I'm not making enough money. I need to exploit people and sell them weight loss drugs. And it's not just weight loss drugs, too. You can find any there's no end of niche areas where you can find a drug that people really want. And if you don't have any scruples, you can just set up shop and and write off scripts to your heart's content. You mean ivermectin? <laughs> you mean my IV hydration clinic? Uh, it, it, I'm I'm getting depressed now. I, yeah, no, I'm definitely like feeling down. We need to end this on a on a happier note. But I got to be honest, I got nothing. Yeah. Um, seen any good movies lately? We just talk. Remember we talked about they live for like eight minutes last time. Yeah. Um. You know. I uh I saw sneakers. Uh, Robert Redford and Sidney Poitier and uh, Dan Aykroyd and River Rest Phoenix. Yeah, um, it it doesn't hold up. Ooh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. I'm supposed to end this on a happy note. No, that's fine. We can just abruptly cut after I announce that we're about to talk about licorice pizza. row and and you know i i it was, it was great though it's just it's it's short it's tight john carpenter's compelling director do you think spielberg saw the final um acetylene tank shooting scene and was like this is how i'm gonna end jaws <laughs> no because jaws came out in 1975 is that right i thought it was 78 75 okay all right do you think it was the other way around then do you think john carpenter no because because you know there's no drama with that right he takes the first two shots misses them then like there's a one-liner and then he gets takes the last shot yeah
one one of the one of the my favorite little fun facts about it is uh you know the score uh so good it, so good it it's basically four different tracks and, yeah. and he just kind of repeats them or, or chops them up over the course of the movie but you know that main theme the dun 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 dun, dun is yeah can it, we steal that can we put that at the end <laughs> no <laughs> i'll i'll make up something else that's kind of like it but um the uh the the score was actually caught the attention of this uh, young woman in Britain who was the uh, daughter of Donald Pleasance, who famously went on to become uh, Dr. Loomis in the Halloween franchise. And oh. the reason he agreed to take the part was because the daughter was a, such a fan of the soundtrack. He says, oh, you got to do this. And so it was that simple little score that led us to, uh, you know, Donald Pleasant's presence in uh, in Halloween. Interesting. Yeah. See, I love little. You know, are there stories like that now, or is this like an artifact of like seventies to nineties Hollywood? Oh, everybody knows each other. Fair enough. Yeah. It's, it's-